Welcome to the Spirit Lake Wellness Podcast with Dr. John Ewing and Kathy Kocher and part two of three of our Neuroscience of Addiction series. I remember reading a study. I don't remember who did it or when or any of that because those are details that my brain doesn't do a good job of tracking. But it was uh, basically saying the takeaway that I got was if you have a traumatic experience, a car accident, something like that, and you play Tetris within so many hours, the memories of that event are stored in a way that is different, that does not result in post-traumatic stress disorder. And I thought that was fascinating, and I have no idea why. I love Tetris, so I'm like, is this why things don't bother me? <laughs> well, that is, that is interesting. And to think about trauma reprocessing. So to treat trauma and uh, somebody with PTSD, the cognitive approaches can be helpful, but oftentimes are that those approaches are inadequate. Whereas if we create a more somatic experience, as in people viscerally feel those feelings at the time that they're experiencing those memories, then you can often uh, come up with the so-called answer, which is basically how do you reconsolidate those memories in a way that makes sense in your current situation? So what you're describing basically is a, a program called prolonged exposure, where you Absolutely. encourage the person to re-experience through memory what happened to them and to sit in that long enough to feel uncomfortable and to realize that nothing bad is going to happen. And then over time, they learn that I can have these thoughts and yes, it can be uncomfortable, but I'm going to be okay. Yeah. And it's it's a... It's not something I would use with children, but there's different things that you can do with children. But it's um, it's like any treatment approach that it's it's going to be right for some people. It's not going to be right for everybody. Right. Yeah. What What's interesting is that a lot of times people push away those difficult feelings yeah. because they are afraid of being overwhelmed. Right. So to a certain extent. Uh, a part of who we are as a self is that collection of plans and intentions that we've gathered in the frontal lobe. So when that's suppressed, it almost feels like a little bit of death because uh, those plans and intentions go out the window and we're no longer in that world. We're in this other world of fear and rage and and who we thought we were and what we thought we were going to do is not available to us. And so people fear that state of, of overreactivity, which is almost, it can be an out-of-body experience. People can experience uh, being uh, scared out of their wits or uh, scared out of their skin and actually have that observer experience where they watch themselves reacting uh, without being able to intervene. So when people fear that that condition of being reactive and being out of control, then they push away anything related to those feelings because they don't they don't like that. A good example is a young person that's afraid of spiders, 
and they see a piece of lint on the carpet. Mm. Freak out, ow, spider. And, and of course, uh, uh, the parent might pick up the piece of lint and say, it's a piece of lint here. And the, and the kid won't even look at it because they're more afraid of that fear than they are of the uh, uh, of of that uh, spider or or piece of lint, and so it's a really interesting mechanism. Uh, so, what are the ways that you found helpful to to deal with people in a psychotherapy session? People come in and they tell you their stories and they talk about how they feel well you, you'd think but but usually talking about how you feel is is something that is a goal that we work towards because when when people get shut down early on they don't or if they're using drugs or alcohol um emotional growth coping skills stop because the, the coping skill becomes the drug or the alcohol. So it's important to find out the age at which they started using, because then you kind of have a sense of where you have to kind of meet them where they're at. But one of the big things that I spent a lot of time working on is feelings identification. Start with the four basics, happy, sad, mad, scared, you know, and I've had, I've worked with people that didn't, knew one of those. They knew mad, but they didn't know happy. They didn't know sad. They didn't know fear. So figuring out how to help them recognize <clears throat> what that feeling is cognitively, and then try to break that, that barrier to get it from their head into their body. Where do they feel it? And and get to recognize what those signs are. And that can take a really long time. And then you expand to other emotions, because I believe there's eight or 10 core emotions that are expressed universally in the same way. And so um, even with adults, I'll use flashcards and uh, practice mimicry, um, practice charades, you know, you know, what's that? Happy, yeah. Scared, you know, and make the face in, in an exaggerated way. Because, you know, when you smile, you can't help but kind of feel a little happy, right? And yeah. when you make an angry face, you kind of feel a little angry. And so if you make a confident face, you know, with the appropriate posture and a little head waggle, you know, and you start feeling a little confident. And then you start naming those and you start teaching those um, it's a similar thing to kids that are people that are on the spectrum because they also have a deficit in an awareness and knowledge of emotions. And so there can be some, some uh, good work done just doing that basic feelings identification work. And not, not all therapists do it, but it, it's, it's super important because I used to make the assumption that because I know my feelings, I know where they live in my body. I know what they feel like. I know what they're called. I understand them cognitively, physically, emotionally. Well, everyone else must too. How could you not? We all live in bodies. Yeah, no, completely different animals. So I have to check in and say, so when you feel happy, where do you feel that? 
you know, and I, I used to do an activity with kids um, where I had a little gingerbread outline and a, a box of crayons. And I'd say, okay, pick a color that represents happy for you and draw where you feel that on your body. And, you know, go through the different emotions. And the best example I ever got was someone who took a yellow crayon and drew a squiggly line all the way around the gingerbread feature creature. And I said, well, what's that? Goes, well, that's how I feel when I'm happy. It's just like everything quivers. <laughs> and I thought, all right, that is, that's a kid that's in touch. That was cool. You know, but sometimes you see people that just say, um, yeah, anger. Yeah, that's my left knee. I feel anger in my left knee. And I'm like, okay, we're going to work on that. So getting someone to come into the office to talk about their feelings, sometimes we have to work towards that. It can be a lofty goal. And, and then once we get to that point and we can get them to, to talk about feelings and understand them, then we can start looking at was that a, was, you know, why did you feel that way? Was that an appropriate reaction? How did feeling that way make you make these decisions or behave in that way? And then you start doing the chaining, you know. That was the feeling, then there was the thought, then there was the behavior, then there was the consequence. And is that something you want to repeat? And if you don't want to repeat it, where can we? Probably can't change the feeling, but we can change the thought and we can change the action. And then the consequence will be different. Yeah, and then also you can get people to moderate the intensity of that internal tension. Yeah. That's where the smooth breathing and whatnot can come in. So letting, helping them to uh, feel the feeling and experience those thoughts that go with it, uh, while at the same time moderating that internal tension. Yeah. Uh, with and I'd like to... Sorry, I like that you brought up um, intensity because a lot of times, you know, parents will bring their children in and say, you know, they need to stop having these tantrums. And you're like, okay. And so one of the things that <clears throat> I feel strongly about is, you know, let's, let's look at change not as black and white, not as tantrum versus no tantrum. Let's look at the process of change being a gradual reduction in frequency and intensity. And even if the frequency and intensity shifts, that tantrum over here is still going to feel just as bad as the one over here, even if it's less frequent and it's less intense. So we need to have a way to track it. Was it a one, a three, a five? How intense was it? How often did it happen? Put little tick marks on your calendar because you may go six days without a, a tantrum and then you may have a, a level two tantrum and you're ready to throw in the towel because nothing's working. So I think, you know, behavior is is fascinating when, because we, we sometimes think you just, well, you just stop. Very few things we just stop doing. Yeah. So it's one thing that happens when children are growing up is that they, display emotions and behavior that will help them to stay connected with the parent and sometimes uh, if the parent themselves is having difficulty the 
the person, the little child can get so invested in that act in being a team player that, yeah, they lose touch with what they're actually thinking and how they're actually feeling. And so when they have difficulty identifying emotions, we call that alexithymia. And yes, it can be difficult to get people back into their body uh, thinking and feeling what they actually feel as opposed to what they think they're supposed to feel or think. And you're right, that interaction and the ways the ways we learn to get the attention and to shift the focus and you know, some sometimes somebody in the family is the barometer. You know, there may be this incredible dysfunction within the family and it's expressed in the behavior of one family member. Yeah. You look at that and you're like, okay, let's let's shift this over here, and all of a sudden that behavior reduces. It's yeah. like magic. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, it is fascinating. And the compartmentalization that people can get into is another almost one of those uh, tragically interesting subjects. Uh, the, the thing is, is that a lot of times these tensions and emotions and thoughts are continuing and going on irregardless of whether or not we're paying attention to we can we can get very good at directing our attention towards a series of scripts about how to be a good person and in the meantime our actual state is, is quite different and uh, so then during moments of urgency and uh, intensity then when that frontal lobe is suppressed and our usual good person scripts are not online <laughs> then sometimes that unexpected behavior is is unfiltered and is not shaped towards our interest or the interest of people around us that is that is a fascinating concept and, and one that i experienced yesterday and noticed um i love to go hear live music and i love to dance I will not dance by myself. I will not be the only person dancing by themselves in front of a live band. It's just, nope. But put me in an inflatable T-Rex costume and I will dance in front of the band for, I, I think I was there for 40 minutes, just dancing, having a good time in this inflatable costume, talking to people, how you doing? You having a good time? Yay, all right. Because it was, it was a, a step away from my norm, my behavior norms. Me, Kathy, does not do this. But me in a T-Rex costume going under the name of Rexy, oh yeah, she's an animal. <laughs> yeah. and again, so it's the same thing yeah. when you step outside of what you think are the prescribed norms. Right, and that, uh, again, that risking social defeat. Mm -hmm. It's like, gee, you know, you step out of the costume and you're golden. And to a certain extent, we see this on the internet in social media uh, mm -hmm. where people are, uh, they're less afraid to uh, to be inappropriate. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> so you're, you're there's a huge amount of social defeat on the social media. Yeah, because you develop this alternate persona and it doesn't matter if they get defeated because it's not your core, it's not you. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, it's it's a really interesting process. I uh, uh, boy, howdy. Uh, and then to see how substance use can cause those adaptations that just ramp up the intensity of these processes. Um, yeah, is that because of the disinhibition? Um, partly. Uh, so there's the desire for disinhibition, and then there's the desire to avoid disinhibition. Mm. So uh, disinhibition is when the frontal lobe activity is suppressed and plans and intentions are derailed. Um, so uh, sometimes people will consume a substance with that in mind. And so substance abuse is the use of a euphoria producing substance to a planned degree of intoxication or disinhibition. Uses within peer norms and serious harm is rare. Uh, that's our definition of substance abuse. And the reason that it's abuse is that anytime you try to get high, the adaptation to that substance is gonna result in a low. And because our brain is so good at adapting, there's actually gonna be more low than high. <laughs> so it's, uh, you're letting the air out of your own tires. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, so that's one form of disinhibition, the euphoric type. But then the other types of disinhibition can be from fear and rage. Um, and disinhibition can also occur, particularly in young children, with silliness and happiness and play. So yeah, being able to balance these systems is, is part of, of growing up. And unfortunately, yeah, some of us need a T-Rex suit to be able to play and dance. And that's, oh my gosh, how did we arrive at that? Are you asking me? Yes. Yes. How did, how did we get so dignified as to lose that play and fun and spontaneity? Oh, gosh, yeah, that is a that is a great, a great question because there's all these there's all these punishments that that we get, you know, that this the social the social world is not kind. And I think we learn it very young. You 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 don't you don't run through the store, you walk. You you're taught in school, you walk on the right side of the hall. You yeah. raise your hand before you talk. You get permission to go to the bathroom. You know, you learn all these social things that you're supposed to do. And and oh heaven, heavens, I mean, we all know we I'm sure every single one of us can remember that one kid in elementary school that was running down the left side of the hall or yeah got up and walked out of the room without getting permission or just wasn't wasn't conforming the way they were supposed to conform and uh, and then you know maybe they disappeared maybe they started to conform I don't know but it it can be we can get punished in subtle and not subtle ways for not conforming and then we internalize it like we have those interjected voices you know at some point i don't need to hear my parents i don't need my mother to tell me to get my elbows off the table anymore because my voice inside my head says get your elbows off the table 
you know. Yeah. Now these uh, these experiences of social rejection when we're growing up can definitely leave a mark and it definitely hurts. You talked about punishment. Turns out that that word pain is related to penalty or to punish and also uh, to pile on. So it's a cousin of the word uh, poetry, which is uh, poesis to uh, pull together, to pile up. Uh, of course, uh, there's uh, no poetic justice in some of our suffering <laughs> and in the pain that we have. But yeah, the uh, need to avoid tissue destruction and also to avoid getting kicked off the island, very important to us for our survival. Uh, so when uh, social groups are forming, say during middle school, and then, you know, somebody tells you, oh, I'm sorry, but I don't, uh, so-and-so over there, this I use a third person, so-and-so and so-and-so -and -so don't want you sitting with us anymore uh it's like oh my gosh social defeat right. right fear rage all those things are very activated yeah yeah and we and we sometimes attribute that to i don't have the right shoes or i'm not wearing the right clothes or my makeup isn't super expensive or I don't know, I need, I need a different haircut. We, we try to morph ourselves into either through purchasing or some other kinds of acquisition into the kind of person that's going to be socially acceptable. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and the people that we, we look up to the people that we hold in high regard are the people that break those molds. Yeah. Which I, I find fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, Enviable spectacle. Beauty is an enviable spectacle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that envy is a fascinating uh, phenomenon all of its own. Envy and jealousy is like, oh, we see our uh, position in the pack, our ability to influence the opinion of others. Um, the attention that we might otherwise have being diverted away by this other enviable spectacle. <laughs> well, it took me so long to figure out the difference between envy and jealousy. I was so proud when I did, but it just, it was, an envy is someone having something I want. I am uh -huh. envious, I want that. Jealousy is being afraid that someone is going to take something away from me. Yeah, okay, and good. It, I was surprised at how long it took to figure that out yeah. because I could never figure out, am I jealous or am I envious? And usually I'm not jealous because, you know, I, I somebody wants it more than me, fine. But, um, but envy, I get envious sometimes. I, I wish I had, I wish I had long, beautiful hair. I wish oh. I had a better car. I wish I had, you know, <laughs> You know, those those things, those envies, those little envies get me. And that that is a sign of discontent. When I start feeling envious, I'm like, okay, what is it in your life that you're not feeling content with? How can you change that? And it's usually I'm not spending enough time in self-care. 
I'm not really just getting out in nature and appreciating the things that I have. Yeah. And then the envy goes away. Yeah. And one thing about our society that is actually, uh, it's reaching extremes. Extremes to the point that it's possible that our latest generation is learning to ignore it. And that is the pressure of advertising and the images and assumptions in the TV shows that we're exposed to. So the, the, uh, the broadcaster uh, puts on a TV show uh, to gather an audience for the people that want to promote a product, that want to advertise. And so then the uh, advertisement and the show influences the attitudes and expectations of that group. And so then these things evolve over time. And the show becomes more and more about attracting that audience and reinforcing a particular standard and then um, showing how you're inadequate because, you know, oh, you're going to have major social rejection if you don't, da, 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 da. you're going to have pain and suffering. Oh, and yeah. So, yeah. 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 And it's so, and it's so targeted depending on what show you're watching, the commercials, the advertisements are so targeted. I, yeah, that's a yeah. brilliant point. And, and that whole, um culture of consumption yep. driven by these insecurities and these needs to want to fit in you yep. know and i've fallen prey to it oh my teeth aren't white enough i need to go spend money on chemicals to put in my mouth that irritate my gums that make me grouchy for two days but my teeth are whiter you know <laughs> <laughs> You know, or, or long finger. Oh, I should have manicures. I should have beautiful long nails. Well, yeah, I could, but then I can't play the guitar. So that that's not going to work. You yeah. know, but you, you have to, I think at some point you have to get to a certain emotional maturity that is not connected to age where you can walk away from those things and say, these, yeah. these things are not about me. These things don't matter. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Yeah, when we're younger, there's only the present moment and the next few minutes. And of course, any toddler knows that. You know, they know if they don't get it now, it will never happen. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. And when we get a little older, I think our our sense of time expands. Mm -hmm. And so, with the cortex, when it's activated, yeah, we got that sense of time, but the brain stem and all of these intense reactive emotions, I don't think they do have that sense of time. I think they can, they still have to have it now. And this is the only thing. And um, so, yeah, learning to negotiate those things is, is pretty important. Yeah. I used to, uh, I, I use the hand model of the brain a lot. And it's very visual, so I'm not sure how it'll translate in a podcast, but basically I hold my hand out, palm facing away from me, and I say, okay, this is your brain. And I put my hand on my other hand on the wrist. I go, this is your brain stem. This is your breathing, your heart rate, all that. And then I put my thumb in my palm, and I say, that's your amygdala. That's your, 
That's your automatic response. That's the part of you that's going to get you running when you think you see a bear. And then you find out it's a squirrel and you're embarrassed. And then I take my other four fingers and I fold them down over my thumb. And I go, this is your cortex. This is your thinking brain. So when something activates your thumb, your fingers fly off and you can't think. So you got to figure out how to calm your thumb down so your fingers can come back down and your cortex can get reengaged. And I've got, you know, hopefully a lot of kids and adults walking around going, slow down your thumb, slow down your thumb. <laughs> Where are your fingers? Get your fingers back down. Because I'll say to people, when your fingers are up here and your thumb is in charge, you can't talk about it. You can't, you can't, you can give the best, most logical argument in the world and it's not going to go anywhere because the cortex isn't engaged. The thinking isn't going to happen. So this is this is something that dovetails into a question that I have uh, that I would like uh, to get therapists' input on. And that is one of the things I'm trying to do with people is to get them to activate that care system to step over those thoughts of inadequacy and being treated unfairly and to see those as signals of how much they want to attach to people and then to activate that care system and engage in heart-to-heart -heart emotionally resonating connections with others and that certainly is very comforting and uh, can be helpful but it makes me worry that a lot of those past traumas and a lot of those fears and that rage is then unprocessed. And how what's how do I get people to where they can connect with others without that? I think some people call it spiritual bypassing without bypassing uh, the work that they might do. Right. That's an interesting concept because some of the work that they need to do can be done once they have a tribe, once they have that group that they feel connected to. Sometimes they need that safety to be able to do the work. Other people, one-on-one -on -one therapy, do the work in those sessions, work through that anxiety and that fear about joining a group or a tribe, and then you know move forward that way. It, it's, I think it's unique to the person. I don't think one way of doing it is going to fit for everybody. I know in my experience, um, I have kind of a kind of a, a litmus test. Um, you know, do you know your emotions? Do you know where they live in your body? Can you identify what your triggers are? Are you committed and have evidence that you haven't been using for a period of time? Okay would you like to come to a group and work on social skills and just hang out for two hours a week gets you out of the house would you like to try that i want a one month commitment and then we talk about the barriers well i don't have a ride we can get you a ride well i'm not sure about work are you working right now no but i might okay well until you do let's try this you know, and we just start working on chipping away the barriers and the reluctance. And the other thing is unrelenting positive regard. 
um, when I was organizing these groups, every person in those in that group got unrelent, unrelenting positive regard. I thought every single person was amazing, and I would tell them that. And they did great stuff. And if we were doing a project or an activity, I would walk around and say something positive about every single one. Even if we were doing something as simple as, you know, drawing something on a piece of paper and one person just went boom and did one line, I'd say, that is a straight line. Good job. What does that mean to you? And people respond to that. They like that. Who wouldn't? Who yeah. Wouldn't? It's like having your own personal it's like having your own personal cheerleader or your own band following you behind with music everywhere you went. That would be super cool too. So yeah, there's a couple of people that might have difficulties with that. And that mm -hmm. is the people that are so locked up with self-esteem issues and so afraid of social defeat and rejection that they have great difficulty risking saying anything or even being present and those are the ones that you you don't you 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 do a long-term approach to getting them into a social group you you mark change in smaller increments and you look at okay let's work on unlocking some of that stuff let's look at starting to experience emotions and not having them be scary you know, let's let's maybe that's um, maybe let's watch Inside Out, which is that great animated movie about all these emotions inside this little girl's head and how they act and why they do what they do and and um, you know that can be a fun thing to to do. Um, you know, there's a lot of things you can do, and then and then adjust. The therapist has to adjust their expectations. This is not gonna be three sessions and you're ready for group. This is someone who's locked down really tight. They're gonna need more time to start trusting one person and that one person might be you. So but once they do that, then maybe they can trust you enough to try trusting a few other people. Thank you for listening to the Spirit Lake Wellness Podcast. Spirit Lake Wellness is a 501c3 dedicated to health and wellness education. Learn more at spiritlikewellness.org.